0: Send a tweet.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for November 3rd, 2019. Where's the time gone? I'm Joe Hicks.
0: And I'm Evan Kelly. And
1: Evan, what are we looking to do here?
0: Well, Joe, we're going to talk about a few things. And the main thing that we want to bring to the table in our discussion is good faith. We want to adequately evaluate ideas in the light of facts, and thoroughly examine all aspects of a scenario.
1: Yeah, and uh, we do that as we acknowledge that we are only human. We are not on the ivory tower. We do not know everything, and we are not morally superior to everybody. So, Evan, what do you want to talk about today?
0: Well, Joe, today I want to talk about value-added tax. This has come up recently in the news, specifically surrounding the policy proposals of one Mr. Andrew Yang, who is running for president as a member of the Democratic Party. Andrew Yang has a lot of lofty ideas for how to fix problems in this country, none more lofty than his proposal for a universal basic income, which he calls a freedom dividend the main way which he proposes paying for a freedom dividend is not with a wealth tax, which is popular among the more progressive factions of the Democratic Party, such as Elizabeth Warren, but with a value-added tax. This would have the added benefit, he claims, of making companies like Amazon finally pay taxes and share in this American prosperity with everyone. So I just want to kind of look at... Some of Yang's claims and evaluate what a value-added tax is and isn't to reach some informed conclusions, some adequately informed conclusions about what this proposal really means. All right. So um, first, let's look at his claims about Amazon. Amazon being the uh, the book company, they do a lot more than that. But in 2017. Amazon truly did not pay any federal taxes. They did this by claiming a $220 million tax credit and by deferring $917 million of stock-based compensation to employees. So what this means is that if companies choose to pay their employees in stock, which effectively doesn't cost the company any liquid assets, it just transfers part ownership of the company. This can be deducted from the total tax burden of that company at full market value. So by paying its employees in stock-based compensation, Amazon can write that off essentially because the government taxes income, which is revenue minus costs. So stock-based compensation can be added to The cost line on a business's tax return and not raw revenue. So, when all of that was added up, Amazon ended up getting a $137 million tax refund, despite being a multi billion dollar company. And then the 2018 tax bill reduced the corporate tax rate by about 14 percentage points, which analysts have estimated will save Amazon an additional $789 million on their tax burden. So it seems like a pressing problem. Will a value-added tax help to correct for this? First, we got to understand what a value-added tax is. Broad strokes, it's an indirect tax on a supply chain that is collected whenever value is added, whenever another firm takes someone else's product and makes it better in some way, applies some specific expertise to make that product better. So you collect, the government collects value-added tax when a producer of raw materials sells to a manufacturer, or when a manufacturer sells to a distributor, when a distributor sells to a retailer, and of course, when the retailer sells to the consumer. Now, for me, that it gets a little complicated, so I've devised a scenario that I think helps to illustrate it using real numbers and real terms, though they are hypothetical. So let's say the United States had a 10% value-added tax on certain goods and services. For our purposes here, I'm going to use products that are very near and dear to my heart, frozen french fries. So let's say a potato farmer grows potatoes, collects them, and sells them to a frozen French fry company, and for one truckload of potatoes, they want to charge $100 for the sake of simplicity. Well, they charge the frozen French fry company. They send them the bill for $110 for the price of the potatoes and the 10% value-added tax. So now the frozen French fry company pays $110 for the potatoes. The potato farmer keeps the $100 that the potatoes cost and pays the other $10 to the government. So, so far, the government has collected $10 in tax revenue of a value-added tax, and that cost has been absorbed by the frozen French fry company. So now the frozen fry company takes those potatoes from the farmer in Idaho and cuts them up, bags them, and sells them to the supermarket. Now, they've done a lot of work turning those potatoes into french fries, so they're going to go ahead and charge the supermarket $200 for that same quantity of potatoes. So when they send their invoice, their bill to the supermarket, they are going to charge them $220. $200 for the product, and then $20 for the 10% value-added tax. Now, when the frozen fry manufacturing company goes to pay their tax bill, they don't have to give the entire $20 to the government. They get credited with that $10 that they already paid previously in the process. So they keep the $200 for the cost of the good, and then they take $10 to recoup the previous payment, and then they send $10 more back to the government. So if you're tracking so far, the government has now collected $20 in value-added tax. And as of right now in the chain, the supermarket is responsible for paying the entirety of that tax bill. Now, it's time for the supermarket to finally sell the frozen french fries to the consumer. They also add value by collecting groceries in one place and making it accessible for the consumers. So they mark it up to $300 for that same quantity of potatoes. Obviously, no one, not even me, is going to buy $300 worth of potatoes at once. But for the sake of argument, we track the same number of potatoes that were sent in the initial shipment from the original farmer. So... With a 10% value-added tax, buying that same quantity of frozen fries at the supermarket will cost $330 if the supermarket intends to sell them for $300 with a 10% value-added tax. So by the end of the chain, it works much like sales tax. The consumers end up paying $330 for $300 worth of frozen french fries. Now again, the supermarket has already paid $20 earlier in the chain, so they get to keep 20 of the 30 extra dollars as a credit for the tax that they previously had paid earlier in the supply chain, and send 10 more dollars to the government. So on this initial truckload of frozen french fries, which were origi- which were sold to the consumers for $300 pre-tax... The government has now collected $30 worth of tax, and all 30 of those dollars were paid by consumers at the final point of sale. The consumer adds no more value to the product, they just consume it. So they have no one to pass on the tax burden to. So anytime we talk about value-added tax, it's a tax on consumption, and the ultimate tax burden lies with the consumer. So when Andrew Yang says that a value-added tax is finally going to make Amazon pay somewhere along the line, this is really a misconstrual of how value-added tax works. In the end, though Amazon may pay a small amount on a transaction or some other value-added service, they pass that cost on down the supply chain to the point where it is eventually absorbed by the consumer. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Most countries, uh, in fact, all countries within the OECD or Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, all of them, besides the United States, have a value-added tax. Big countries that are comparable to us like the United Kingdom, India, China, all implement a value-added tax. But it really is just a nationalized sales tax in the end. It's, it's a tax on consumption that requires consumers to pay more. If we want Amazon to pay taxes, we can just close the loopholes that I've already detailed in the tax code. We can end exemptions for stock-based payments. We can lower the amount of deductions that Amazon is able to claim. And if we want to fund a universal basic income, there are better ways to do so than with a regressive tax, because all sales tax is ultimately regressive. You are taxed a higher percentage of your income the the farther down you are on the income scale. So a wealth tax is a progressive tax which goes up in tax rate as you go up the income or in this case wealth scale and seems to be a fairer tax because as I referenced in uh, one of our pre-podcasts, I did an entire segment on on taxation. And I think that maybe, Joe, we should revive that in written form, perhaps. <laughs> but you never want to interfere with someone's ability to meet their own basic needs. And regressive tax ultimately puts us at greater risk of doing that than does progressive tax. We want to tax money that's not being used to meet basic needs. And... That is not what a value-added tax will do. That's just fundamentally not what it is.
1: Well, you know, I, I depart a little bit. Yes, the value-added tax, it, it works kind of like a sales tax. But the way the, the current model works, sales tax is only when it goes to the end consumer. So let's say you're a t-shirt manufacturer and you sell a truckload of t-shirts to Walmart. Walmart doesn't pay tax pay nobody pays any tax on that sale because sales tax is only paid when it's sold to the end consumer so value-added tax is like adding sales tax to every step of the process but then again it's only a tax on the value that was added to the product not the entire value of the product as a whole so one of the main reasons that people like uh countries like value-added taxes is because they're automatic. They happen at every stage of the process. There's no getting out of it, really. It creates a line of bureaucracy for every item. And as long as as your country is consuming things, it will be creating uh, tax revenue from a value-added tax. And most of the countries that do have a value-added tax uh, do tend to account for the a regressive nature of it, which means an increased uh, proportional burden on the poorer consumers by giving a rebate on a fixed amount of the value added tax to those people who are earning lower amounts. So in the end, it comes out about even, but the, the net is that it's a tax that's hard to avoid if you're doing commerce. Everybody gets taxed. There's no special exemptions, no getting lost in the woodwork, no getting lost in the paperwork. Uh, so it happens automatically and it's hard to get rid of. And that's why they like it. So because there will always be a stream of money coming in. So that's I, I my take on value it, added tax.
0: I can appreciate the idea that it's harder to avoid, but I, I, I just, I really bristle at the idea that because you're taxing everywhere along the chain that, that somehow everyone is paying tax, but that's really inaccurate. When you look at the final tax burden, it's, it's always passed along and the
1: consumer, but not The end
0: of the line.
1: Um, uh, part of that, um, if I remember from some of my economics research or not research, my, my, uh, learning experience is that not all te- whenever there's a tax it doesn't get passed on to the last person who gets the bill um so if there was a value added tax and there was a tax that was paid for by that you know Amazon sells something and then there's tax on that especially a value added tax uh the consumer wouldn't end up paying 100% of that even though they may put it on the bill that you strictly pay a hundred percent of it. But some of that's baked into the price. Some of that's baked into, uh, their, their offerings. So, you know, in different scenarios, you know, the different sides charge, you know, end up paying for different amounts of the tax, but the tax isn't fully passed on to the consumer.
0: Well, what what mechanism prevents it from being fully passed on to the to the research that I've done there's there's no mechanism that that inhibits a seller from not adding the full value of the value added tax to the invoice.
1: It's because it it's part of being baked into the price. So the amount someone is willing to pay for a product, the the most efficient the highest selling whatever optimal amount that someone is going to spend on the pro- on a product is around the same whether you know they pay tax or not so that the price of goods are a little bit lower than what they would be without the tax so um,
0: your claim is not that amazon well okay cuz I, I think we're kind of talking about two different things here um, it, no, no money. All the money that's going to the government is coming out of the consumer's pocket. But what you're saying is that Amazon will adjust their prices downward, so it's as if they are experiencing taxation because they will the the, the price that a consumer will pay won't ratchet up with the tax. So therefore they have to, take less profit and instead that money becomes the value added the money that would be used to pay the value added tax.
1: Yes. And, and it's also, it has to do with um, individual profitability of certain project products and all that stuff. You know, it's kind of like how, you know, when a business has um, you know, or an individual has a big fund of money, you know, there isn't the specific, most people don't have the specific, Oh, this is rent money and this is food money. And this is this money. It's all just kind of money that you have. So not all the money that is collected by or from consumers is exactly what pays for all those taxes. They pay businesses still end up paying a portion of those taxes.
0: But Again, how if if, if are, are you arguing that there's a direct payment from a business to the government that doesn't that that isn't ultimately passed along? I, I, I guess I just don't understand what what in the framework of a value added tax makes that happen.
1: I mean, because they're also having to pay taxes along the way. And but as, as I explain charge, the model, so...
0: they they just they 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 bill the the proportional value added tax to the next person in the the chain and then they get a credit for what they've already paid so even though they make a payment they recoup that payment from the next distributor so yes the 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 french fry company is paying a nominal amount in tax but then when they sell that to the next stage along the line they're getting that money back and more so they're paying taxes, but they're not really absorbing the cost of the tax.
1: I guess I'm not as up on the theory as I'd like to think, but as my understanding is, is that the entire cost isn't put onto the consumer. Well, that that was that tax. was not
0: what I uncovered while researching this. And my, you know, as as you mentioned in the intro, my understanding is incomplete as well. Um, as is but, mine. Yeah. That uh, that that was my understanding of the the, UVA, and, and, the VAT and framework.
1: Po- and another point is is that just because you do a value added tax doesn't mean that you can't also do progressive income taxing, That's which true. is what most of the European countries. It's not an either or situation. And as much as Democrats may like to think of that, this will or you know, left people on the left would think that taxing the rich is not going to pay for everything like yes i believe it's something we should do um but it's not going to be nearly enough to pay for every idea that we want to do there that's are going to have accurate. to be other ways to go about it
0: the only reason i even presented it in in those terms was because that's how that's how andrew yang is talking about it and that's sort of what what spurred the discussion um yeah. but you're absolutely right we can We can implement a a combination of of tax approaches. I mean, it's what we do in the status quo. We don't just have one aspect of finance that's taxed. There are many different codes. And that will certainly be true in a world with or without a value-added tax.
1: Yeah. So in in my view, I am very pro-value-added tax because it's automatic. It happens at every stage. There is no fungibility of it. Everybody just pays it. And as long as there's a rebate for the lowest earners of society, um, I don't see uh, an issue with it.
0: Yeah, and I guess I come out as, as anti because um, I do agree that the rebate mitigates the regressive nature of the tax. But at some point, I think it behooves us to favor simplicity in our tax policy and... I don't believe the value-added tax adheres to that heuristic.
1: I mean, if we're going on the model of simplicity when it comes to income, then yeah, it is a little difficult. But if you're going for simplicity in collecting tax, then it's it's it wins. It knocks it out of the park.
0: Okay. So I, I definitely agree that the value-added tax is simple to collect at every stage in the the process but but what what about other forms of taxation make it difficult to collect like as opposed to a sales tax how how is that easier to evade in a sense so
1: sales, so sales tax is it, it's like a value added tax except it's only at one step of the process and then it's also deciding who is the end consumer so yeah sales tax i mean it's it's one that's Tough to avoid as well, but this is more going off of other ways you could tax corporations. Like a corporate tax is easy to be fungible, and and uh income taxes of people are easy to be fungible tax, because you can you, know, you can misreport of... incomes. Is that that's the the basis? Yeah, of you it. can misreport, or there's a whole bunch of deductions with a value added tax. There is no deductions. There is no nothing. It just is. There are no special cases. Every step of the process, no matter what, if you've added value to it, you pay taxes. There's no, is this the end consumer? There is no, um, is this, you know, part of expenses? Is this part of, uh, something we can deduct? deduct? No, it's, it's all just taxed. It's simple. Well,
0: um, it is simple within categories, but it's important to mention, um, that a government can decide to exempt certain products from value-added tax. It's usually necessities, like mm-hmm. um, you know staple foods or basic clothing. Um, I remember it was a big deal that the British government waived the value-added tax on the the uh, Do They Know It's Christmas charity single, so that it would be it would motivate. <laughs> More people to buy the the charity record in yeah. the in the nineteen eighties, but I, I think that it it is it's it's a fair point that it being tied directly to a sale price, which comes up on an invoice, makes it basically impossible to evade.
1: Yeah, as long as you're doing business, you're going to be paying VAT. You're going to be paying yes. a VAT tax, and. There's no, I mean, unless you're in those extreme, you know, in those limited circumstances where you're exempt, you're, you're going to be paying it. And if you're not, that's extremely suspect. Yes. I, I'm a fan. It's more of a good vehicle for government to, uh, collect tax revenue and not, and it doesn't necessarily accomplish all progressive ideals of progressive taxation or redistribution or anything like that. But as an automatic collection mechanism, it's good. You know, you don't have to file your taxes every year. You don't have to do this. It just happens.
0: Yeah. And I guess um, for my taste, there are far more appealing taxation options that I would want to roll out first on a national level.
1: Yeah, Evan, your cheese tax. That's all you ever talk about. Don't let them know. I got to spring it on them cheeseburgers are going to cost a dollar more now because of that slice of cheese.
0: (laughs) You know, if it, if it worked like a syntax, it might not be so bad. So ladies and gentlemen, you may have witnessed the first genuine policy disagreement on this program between your two humble co-hosts, but that's good. That's it's two people working with, um, the same base of information at times, reach different conclusions about the implications of that information. And that's that's what discourse is about. It's about finding the disagreements. And uh, I hope this has been valuable. Da-da-da. So, Joe. Yeah, Evan. What do you want to talk about?
1: Well, Evan, I want to talk about a slightly lighter subject that is um the event that happened this past week of president trump getting booed at the nationals game uh Ooh. in the world series what was it uh game 5 i think it was
0: um Maybe. i can tell you i can guarantee you it was game 3 4 or 5 because those were the games played in washington
1: but anyway so in the lead up to this event. So it started with the assassination of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was the leader of ISIS. This was trumped up to be an event similar to the killing of Osama bin Laden in Obama's presidency, which brought great acclaim to him. Well, this time Trump decided to make a rare public appearance at the world series game to celebrate the assassination of Abu Bakar al Baghdadi. And instead of being cheered when he was shown on the Jumbotron, the entire stadium booed. And it was a very directed boo because before he was put on the Jumbotron, there was some images of waving veterans and everyone was cheering. Everything was going great. Cuts to Trump in an executive suite and everyone just boos. And then for like the seven seconds uh, he was on there, he was booing. Then it once again cuts to waving veterans in uniform and everyone's immediately starts changing to cheering. And that was a big moment for Trump. Even after I decided to do this uh, topic this morning, an article in The Economist came out about it. And the tagline is, Donald Trump's embarrassing reception at the World Series was the defining moment of his presidency. Because even in the wake of him killing or uh, overseeing the assassination of the United States' number one target in the Middle East, the general public still does not like him. There were people at the stadium that said that had signs that said "Veterans for Impeachment" and people dropping impeachment banners. So it just it, it it's it's a small flashpoint in the Trump presidency. Now this Economist article seems to make it seem like this is going to be a much remembered event when who knows but i thought it was at least amusing that on that day when he had done something that traditionally brings great national pride he would he is so disliked that even on that day he wouldn't get cheers oh i don't know if you have anything to say evan
0: Well, I think that if nothing else, it's an opportunity to understand some of the instances where Trump's hypocritical nature is brought clearly to light. When Osama bin Laden was killed, Donald Trump made the cable news circuit claiming that Obama was getting too much credit and that it was really in the hands of the people who actually executed the military operation and that the decision was a no-brainer and wasn't that difficult. And uh, just generally that Obama deserved no praise, none at all. Mm -hmm. And now that he is in that position, he is having no trouble accepting the praise and claiming it as a major victory that he and he alone could accomplish. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating to constantly observe that lack of consistency. And if that manifested itself in being booed at a baseball game, then I think, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of inevitable.
1: And also in part of this, I want, I want to ask you, Evan, before this had happened, have you ever heard of Al Baghdadi? No, me neither. And we're both people who pay attention to things. For the most part, like for the most part, we were not super specific on anything. We get kind of the general ideas of most things. And I had never heard of al-Baghdadi, or at least he was not a, a recognized name when it came up. Yeah, um, he
0: wasn't. He didn't have the clout of, of, you know, everyone knowing who Osama bin Laden was. Yes,
1: that, that was going to be my point when Osama bin Laden was assassinated. We Everybody knew who Osama bin Laden was. Um, he had been named a named threat that was part of even pop culture during that time. Uh, mm-hmm. Mentioned in TV shows and works of fiction. Al-Baghdadi was not as well known. Um, his name even to me sounds like a rapper name. But... <laughs> um Al daddy Um so to say that Trump deserves as much, I mean, maybe in an operational and a national security risk, maybe it's the same way. But people wouldn't aren't as uh open with praise because they just don't know who this guy was. And also, yeah. I want to take on a little bit of their critique of the booing. There were some people who, of course, like everything that happens, although not as much as expected. Some people were quick to uh, denounce the crowd for booing the president, saying that, you know, this is disrespectful. You got to respect the presidency and all that kind of stuff. But the next day, Trump went to Chicago or I don't I can't remember if he went to Chicago and had a rally or had a rally and talked about Chicago. But regardless, he talked about Chicago like it was a war torn um city. He compared the safeness of Chicago to that of Afghanistan in war, which is just not accurate. Ridiculous, and yeah. It is not an apt comparison. And people will say we need to respect the president, even if he's not the person you want. Well, I don't believe he's respecting the people. Maybe he, you know, his his whole deal is not respecting everybody. And people like that he doesn't respect people. Respect the people of Chicago. You know, you can talk about the issues of Chicago without calling it a war zone.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know and i'm sure trump and his people don't have very high thoughts of afghanistan either yeah Uh, which you know uh someone like evan or i would probably give a more charitable viewing of than they would so respect begets respect and right now it just doesn't it's a two-way street and nobody's going down it and nobody's quite to blame. Well, maybe maybe one is quite to blame.
0: On the nature of respecting the office, I just think it's weird that we suffer some sort of collective amnesia whenever a new president enters the office. Um, you know, Trump claims that no no president has ever been treated as unfairly as he has. that it's it's unprecedented. But if you go back to the Obama administration, Obama was – he had his nationality questioned, his religious faith questioned, basic elements of his identity were questioned, often along racial lines, which is horribly disrespectful. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there were liberals at the time – clutching their pearls saying no president has ever been treated this badly and we mm-hmm. go back to George W Bush who was widely hated in many parts of the country who had shoes thrown at him mm-hmm. and at the time again people thought no one's ever been treated as badly as George Bush and you can go back to
1: Bill Clinton who <laughs> you, oh, know, you could was- keep going back and going back and going back
0: Exactly. I, I, I just get frustrated when either political party tries to claim a monopoly on being disrespected and having the office of the president disrespected. It's a polarized country. Whatever party takes office is going to have a lot of people who are not a fan of that party, not a fan of that president. And a subsection of either group is going to act disrespectfully towards that president. And I think it's something that we need to live with. If Donald Trump can't handle being booed at a World Series game, or if Obama can't handle some ribbing about tan suits and Grey Poupon, then... They need to get
1: out of the political I mean, game. I mean, even mentioned in the article was that once Obama was booed at a baseball game. Yeah, it's, it's it's part of our world. and But part of the reason why this booing is notable for Trump is because despite what we may think, this is really Trump's kind of first real public outing in his presidency. Yeah, he keeps his
0: events very carefully curated.
1: Right. So people don't know this, but some people like to think that Andrew Yang was the first person to run for president in 2020. But Donald Trump was the first to declare or officially start his candidacy for the 2020 election because Mm -hmm. days after he was inaugurated, he started the Trump 2020 campaign. So every time he has a rally or an event, technically, it is a campaign rally for his re-election. They aren't Correct. public yes. events. They are not presidential events. And because of that, he is able to decide who is in there, to decide the people who are part of that event instead of the more open regulations or more open atmosphere that would be if it was just... A presidential event so he doesn't you know you can go online and find tons of videos of obama going to like bookshops and bakeries and and going on and walks galesburg and, high school yeah and going to galesburg high school <laughs> but you'll not find these same interactions of trump the best you get maybe he tours a factory or something and gives a speech there or And, and what he mostly does is do rallies at different, uh, different places around the country, which are events that are completely contoured to his audience. So in his first major public outing, he got hosed. And it, you know, with Obama, when things happened to him, you know, if there was a heckler or he got booed or something, it wasn't in this noteworthy because he was out in public all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so this, 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 uh, Trump booing is a significant event as we go today when we recorded the house voted on impeachment proceedings and, uh, things are looking rough for Mr. Trump, but yeah,
0: but yeah, but I, I just, I still feel like there's never been a more Teflon Teflon Dawn, you know? Like uh, uh Yeah, we'll nothing see, phases him. <laughs> T- tune in next week for the thrilling continuation of uh this. Yeah.
1: Anyway, so Evan, uh what's our main topic today?
0: Well, today our main topic is going to perhaps dip into a number of different fields. Today we want to talk about regulation, specifically as it relates to housing and how that can take the form of zoning or it can take the form of rent control and what sort of implications this has for our society.
1: Yeah, uh, this was mainly... Spurred by um on Twitter, Hannibal Burris started uh getting some flack. Uh well, first off, Bernie Sanders had tweeted uh, a plan about national rent control, and then Hannibal Burris responded by saying it's bad. And this is uh this caused some controversy because it is known that Hannibal Burris is the owner of. Uh, a property, which he rents out to people. Now he is not a landlord because he rents them out as be Airbnbs, which I guess maybe we could be pedantic about, uh, the definition of a landlord, but, uh, this got him quite some heat that he was a landlord and even seeing one sort of user being like, man, am I going to have to unfollow Hannibal Burris because he's a landlord? (laughs) Um, so. This is kind of what spurred the general idea of talking about rent control and regulation and uh, kind of housing policy. This is going to be the housing policy rant. Yes. Um, so, what is rent control? Evan, did you come up with the definition? Um, or I, I, I have some, I have some bits here. Well let me
0: just let me give you like the the smart Evan answer and the other Evan answer. Um mm-hmm. so rent control I think in general is just sort of limits on the the maximum amount that a landlord can charge for rent. That's sort of like the the basic like okay good job answer. But mm-hmm. then um I the the first time that I became aware that rent control was a thing was from the show Friends because they live in that, that giant apartment that like Monica's grandma or aunt or something had lived in. And they said they were able to get it for really cheap because it was rent controlled and they were lying to the super about who was living there. So kid Evan yeah. watching Friends was like, oh, rent control just means that you can't raise the rents forever and then you can defraud the system that way. Yeah. So, so, you, so, so there tell are... me what to, to separate fact from fiction for me. Tell me, tell me what rent control really is.
1: Well, so rent control is, I mean, it's pretty pneumatic or mnemonic. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> it's stipulations on what its controls on rent. Now, there are several ways that rent control can manifest itself. Um, There are two main ways, at least through my research and that tend are relevant to this discussion. One is putting caps on the amount that a, that rent can be raised. Um, So this would be more of a general uh, policy. And this is also what the Bernie Sanders uh, policy is, is nationally limiting rent increases to 3% increase year over year or 1.5 times the general inflation rate and i think it was whichever one was lower um or higher i can't remember but i mean in in that stipulation it, it you know not a big difference but then there's also a different form of rent control which is hard setting the amount that a landlord can charge for that specific unit and this is more akin to the friends example and something that happened in new york city where they had a program where you could get your you know if you had lived in an apartment for long ago long enough and you had met all these stipulations then you could the government would sell the landlord that you could only charge this much for this apartment. No matter how much the land value increased, no matter how much the taxes went up, no matter how much the housing market changed, you could only charge that much. And this gets, this is almost like a joke in New York. Um, well, no, it is a joke in New York because there are, you know, there's, uh, always rumors of these people who get you know have these big spacious like three-bedroom apartments who only pay like five hundred dollars a month for them and they which would normally retail for way more than whatever than that so those are the kind of two flavors of rent control well,
0: that ex- that explains uh, what's going on in Friends. That show being set in Manhattan, yeah, and and, uh, and
1: in the New York system specifically, they had, um, there was a hereditary portion or part to it, so, so it could so.
0: be passed down,
1: theoretically, at least. Okay, I mean, of course, with any any program like that, there's like a bajillion restrictions and bylaws and all that other stuff. And you probably had to be to for it to hereditarily pass down. You probably had to be living in it with the original occupant for a long time.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So so when we're talking about rent control, let's 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 establish sort of how rents are calculated. Right. If the government doesn't mandate how much you charge for an apartment how how is that typically
1: figured yeah so the way apartments are rent is figured i've actually looked into this because i have possibly looked into the possibility of becoming a landlord maybe someday who knows maybe i'll become the big evil capitalist maybe you'll become hannibal burris maybe i'll become hannibal burris um, but anyway, rent is calculated. Um, it takes into factor uh, the mortgage that whoever owns the building pays, or it's a percentage of the value uh, that the apartment is worth. Then added onto that, you there's also the cost of property taxes. And then whatever annualized amount of maintenance that they have to do, plus about 1% or 2% profit, and that's what gets you profit for, or that's what gets you the amount of rent that gets charged. So when we think about... And the amount of profit can vary based on the location, but that's the general no general, you know, no outside forces. That's kind of bare bones what rent is.
0: So when we talk about how a market operates, typically you're trying to get the point where the mo where you're going to make the most money, right? Where Mm -hmm. you can have the price low enough that if you lowered it anymore, you would be not making your maximum amount of money and if you raised the price anymore then people wouldn't be able to afford it and you would lose money through lack of sales but that that's not necessarily the model that rent pricing works based on because you have to take into consideration the the land evaluation and maintenance
1: yes they're there so in different locales with different demands for housing it ends up getting skewed that you know a lot of the lower income portions of the population are unable to afford rent anywhere this is because in these uh certain urban areas one the land value increases which you know increases the uh, amount of taxes that have to be paid on that property and then uh, for new players that increases the amount of the mortgage that they would have to pay uh, to, in order to buy the building. And then in normally the reason what cause is value or land value to increase is because people are trying to move there. So if there are more people trying to move there and the value increases, it can have the effect of pricing out current poor residents. Uh, and this is known market. as eviction.
0: Yeah, we can Gentri- go with that, or gentrification.
1: Yeah. I mean, it could be gentrification, but gen- um, I, I, I mean, sometimes a, a neighborhood could people could get priced out of a neighborhood without it ever getting spruced up. Um which is often part of gentrification. Gentrification is people coming into an area because the rent is cheap and then turning the area into a nice area because they can buy up all this land cheap, turn it into something worthwhile. And then people want to move there. And then everything becomes more expensive because people want to move there. And then the current residents have to move out, but that this can even happen on a more general level without the, the, uh, the rebirth quote unquote of the, uh, the area. Interesting. Yeah. So some people can get priced out of the market. Now gets the question, what do we do for those people? Um, and rent control is one policy that people take to try and remedy this situation. But it has adverse effects. So it, it, now the, it, this is more in the uh, vein of the people who get an apartment that their rent is stipulated by the government. So what that does is that it creates a lower amount that the landlord gets, regardless of the amount of taxes that they pay. And regardless of the value of that apartment, they're getting a much lower payout for that, which means that they have to, I mean, it could have the adverse effect of making the rent in the other apartments go up. And then it could also have the effect of, I mean, the real symptom is not having enough housing. That's what I'm really trying to get at. But rent control is kind of like trying to put a bandaid on the issue. But then, once once rent control is introduced, then everybody tries to get rent control. Um, it's yeah, kind so of a I think spiral. It's,
0: it's really important to I think sort of flesh out the drawbacks of rent control. Like I think it's very important to understand the mechanism that allows rents to actually go up for some people when rent control is initiated. Can you speak to that a little bit? Could you say that again? You made the claim earlier, and I've I've read this as well, as a big deterrent against implementing rent control is that it can actually make rents go up for some people.
1: Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. So it, when a a landlord owns an apartment building, so all the costs that we mentioned earlier is that they still have to pay their mortgage. They still have to pay property taxes, and they still have to do maintenance on those buildings. Now, all those variables are what we call fixed costs. They don't really change. You know, the more business or more or less business they do, that amount doesn't change. Now, most apartment buildings, the way their accounting and funds work and a rent goes, it it's all based on full occupancy every month so that everyone is paying a certain amount of rent that ends up paying for all the for all the mortgage all the tax all the prop or all the uh, property maintenance and whatever other utilities that are included and then also netting some profit for the landlord to theoretically live off of now if some apartments in that building have a, lower than market value or lower than uh, accounting value for uh, that building, then all the other people in that building end up getting higher rent in order to compensate. For the
0: fixed cost.
1: Yes, for the fixed costs. Because in the end, we do live in a capitalist society. They aren't just giving apartments away. Landlords aren't, at least.
0: Yeah, there would be no no incentive to operate at a loss
1: and if prices are going up to begin with because there's enough demand or there's more demand coming for new people to come in and there's not a whole lot of extra supply on the market that means that more apartments need to be built but if uh, this is the other side of the coin where if there aren't more apartments then then prices just keep on going up regardless and people keep you know, they can make out with their rent controlled apartment. So,
0: so we, we talked earlier about how standard market forces don't necessarily apply to housing, but is it possible that if if there's high demand for an area, you can raise or lower prices that just affect the, the percentage of profit? Is that does is it safe to say that that happens in the housing market as well?
1: I mean, it it can happen um, if there's if the demand is kind of very slight and just kind of pushing on things, then uh, profitability can go down. But there to get any sort of new investment or anything, there has to be profitability in the market.
0: Sure, but maybe that it's not that it's not that landlords have. No control over how much to charge for rent, but rather that there is a floor. is Is that maybe a more accurate way of describing it?
1: I mean, yeah, there is definitely a floor um, of where they can charge and still be in business. i I guess maybe i'm not I'm not quite understanding what you're asking about,
0: so I'm just trying strictly. to understand the the extent to which the housing market adheres to supply and demand in terms of pricing and to what extent it just sort of is what it is based on fixed cost.
1: Housing prices are reflected pretty directly in the supply and demand of the market. What we run into issues with is that if the median market gets above where poor people are, then they have trouble affording housing. But a response, pretty directly to the demands that are in this area you know in whatever area like if nobody's trying to move to a city then rents aren't likely to go up unless there's some other issue that's going on
0: so Um, why why isn't the, the the reverse true why is why isn't it that large percentages of homeless populations don't drive rents down
1: because uh, the, the homeless people are, um, they were priced out of the market because there's still, if, if rents keep going up or the stay the same, that means that there's still a demand or a large enough group of people who are willing to pay the amount that is being stipulated for apartments. They just got priced out of the market.
0: Okay. So I think I'm just having trouble with, uh, conceptualizing being priced out of a market like uh, if if you're selling cheeseburgers and you find that most people will pay two bucks for a cheeseburger but there's a lot of people who are hungry and you have a lot of extra cheeseburgers and
1: why Ah, here's the stipulation if there's a lot of extra cheeseburgers in these housing market scenarios there aren't there isn't a whole lot of extra market.
0: There isn't a whole bunch of
1: empty apartments.
0: So that's where I want to challenge you here because I drew um, a couple of, I synthesized a couple of statistics and I found that according to the National Alliance to End Homelessness for the most recent data on a given night, uh, only about 553,000 people will be homeless. And yet from a third quarter report from the Census Bureau, which also conducts surveys about housing, we have over 13 million vacant housing units within this country. How how do we reconcile those ideas?
1: The the way we reconcile those is that a good number of those housing, uh, I would suspect at least a number of those housing units are owned by people who aren't directly using them at. Oh, no,
0: that's that's accounting for like properties that are intentionally left vacant or are being used for something else. That's just uh, as far as I understood it on the market, not filled.
1: Okay, so those are either housing housing units that are in places that people don't want to live or those are units that are just in flux in the market at any given time. And also that rent is the type of thing where there isn't a pricing scale that goes all the way down to like $1 rent. If someone's going to be renting out an apartment, um, there still is some sort of minimum floor that has to be
0: yeah, that's, reached. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at before about the the, the extent to which you know there there's a there's a bottom line on what yes. cannot be paid for rent. Like that's it, that's what i was trying like to like if understand. if if
1: somebody has an apartment that they just can't fill they're not just going to they're they're not just going to say oh now it's 50 bucks a month that's it i mean on an infinite time scale that you know if they don't ch- change it to something someone can will actually pay then they'll never make any money but normally landlords are pretty hesitant to rent out property Way below market going rate, even if it's not so there's
0: sold. not there there's not necessarily a rule that says that, but that's just how landlords tend to act
1: right. Um I'm trying to think of an example like like car lots. You know, there are sometimes there are certain car models that don't sell very well, and they do lower prices they will lower prices but no no car lot is ever you know going to be like hey here's this brand new 2015 kia whatever and it's the year 2019 for 500 bucks there is i mean when you sell most things there is kind of a kind of floor for what you'll sell it for or you'll find another what means to make money off of it
0: yeah going out of business sales don't just discount everything down to a penny they they have inventories when they close yeah
1: or i mean hell the clearance rack at your stores are calculated that on a whole on the whole batch that they purchased of whatever that ugly shirt they still made profit on the ones that they sold normally and the the amount that went on the clearance rack is still accounted for in their accounting but anyway So there is a minimum floor that people will rent out apartments for, and that means, I mean, in your cheeseburger analogy, I mean, you're selling, you know, all but five of your cheeseburgers every day. Does that mean you cut the price of your cheeseburgers, you know, when you're already making a pretty good, you know, you're selling almost all of them every day? um and most people end up not okay and to, just, and, to, to, uh, and to cut it down to a price that the homeless people would be able to uh to do something with would be a drastic price cut not just a little bit
0: i just want to clarify something here because i think it's really important when we're talking about the the crux of this understanding is how many extra cheeseburgers or how many extra units we have, because by my figures, we've got 12 and a half million vacant units. And your response to that has been that they're just not in places that people want to live. I, I guess I just want a little bit more explanation on, on what your, your understanding of that is.
1: Well, um, the, yeah, the these vacant housing units aren't in the areas that we, I mean, we really talk about like rent control where that may be something that becomes a real issue. Um, There aren't a bunch of vacant apartments or housing units in New York City or really most downtowns of most uh, big cities in this country where you find vacant housing is in areas of decline. Um, So some can think of, you know, Detroit in past years, where there's a lot of vacant housing units and they're tearing down blocks, um, you know, nearby in Flint, Michigan, again, where, uh, lots of things were abandoned. These, these housing units are mostly, at least I would theorize, in places where people aren't necessarily trying to live. And then again, there's also a minimum floor of what people, Will sell them or rent them out for. Um, if you have a two hundred thousand dollar house that you're trying to sell, but it's still taking a long time, then you're you're not just going to sell it for a thousand dollars most of the time. So that's I mean that's where I at least I would imagine most of these units are, and it's okay. housing units. So it could also it could be houses, it can be apartments. It can be a wide array of different uh, housing housing units that are of different statures and different sizes and of different costs.
0: Okay, so I I, I think for now we're just going to proceed with the understanding that that's accurate. I probably would like to, in an ideal world, see more research about specific. Areas where housing vacancies are more common. Unfortunately, the data that I found was was national aggregates, so I don't have that data. But if if we operate under the assumption that the discrepancy is based on selective housing housing shortages and not a national housing shortage, I think we can we can pursue. I mean,
1: here. if if something is vacant and nobody's living there and it's a high demand area, somebody will buy it and live in it. Or somebody will buy it, tear it down and turn it into something else that people will live in. That, that's the general. Yeah. If it's in a high demand area, definitely. Um, an area grows, you know, every little scrap of land is bought up and utilized and turned into something because of the value that's entrenched in it. Um, of just being where it is. So aren't too many vacant uh, opportunities that are for the cheap that developers won't snatch up. Okay. So
0: then we've got, uh, we've got areas then where supply is an issue. That's, that's what this was all building to.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, Places. I mean, inherently if your rents are going up in an area, there's more demand than there is supply. And Um, what, what, uh, what do you attribute that to? Uh, there being more demand or there not being enough supply not being enough or, supply um <laughs> i mean my attribution is in most places zoning laws are pretty restrictive on what you can build in an area so there are great portions of the united states where whole blocks and whole areas are zoned for single family homes which is the lowest, you know, the lowest rating you can have for zoning. It's the least dense option that you can have for an area. And it really limits the amount of, it really put, puts a damper on the amount of people that you can fit in a specific area, no matter how many people are trying to live in that area and how valuable the land is, you know, in, In Los Angeles, you can buy like a two bedroom, like post World War II GI home for $1.2 million. And that's because everybody's trying to live there. You know, you could fit a whole lot more people if you bought a block of those, tore them down, and made a really nice apartment building. But, and then you could fit more people in there and thus bringing down the the costs in the surrounding area, but that's just something some communities don't want to do.
0: And why don't they want to do that?
1: They they There's calls to keeping the character of the neighborhood. There's calls to uh, tradition that this version of the city that we have is the, the one we always want to keep, and we always want it to be like that. I also have a theory that there... Um, sometimes when a city goes into a bit of a decline, there are some people who like to move to that city because it's cheap and then they move there and then they stay because it has a real culture or feeling that they like. And then as the city becomes to get better and they, uh, more people like that feeling or culture or whatever, uh, they believe that it has to stay the same. So as more and more people want to keep coming um less people are able to come because the prices are higher so
0: what about uh concerns that there are there are intrinsically negative qualities associated with increased population density i'm talking traffic pollution crime
1: well that's the that's the price of getting to live in that area with more people it's either It's a choice of we all live in single family homes and this, you know, nobody can live here though. Only the people who live there from the beginning get to live there, or we can build higher density and be able to fit more people in here. Nobody's forcing these people to come and live there, but more people are wanting to come and live there. So they're choosing to come and be part of that and to fit more people, you have to build higher density. And higher density doesn't necessarily mean a lower quality of life. It's just a different one.
0: Well, I I mean, obviously, lower and higher qualities of life are are subjective, but I think that it's hard to argue that increasing population density doesn't increase the elements that I expounded upon earlier, you know,
1: traffic. I mean, I mean, it, it... at that point you're you're valuing a easier drive than people being to afford housing in that area.
0: I mean that's that it's fair to to question about the 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 impact calculus of these values but I guess I just want to to establish that there are I think maybe it was it's part of the picture but not the whole picture to say that they just like living in the neighborhood as it's been. I think that it's important to recognize that there are legitimate trade-offs. And I, I think if you want to argue that it's a good trade-off, I think that's fine. But I, I guess I just wanted to present a fuller picture of what that trade-off is.
1: Yeah, there there is a trade-off. You either get to have the kind of as things stand vision, then the tr- big trade-off is people don't get housing. That there is a set of people... Who can't afford housing that also means that the people who perform all the jobs in your area who make uh, less than whatever the uh, minimum floor is for that housing get priced out of it and they're not able to live in that area and your trade-off is maybe you get less traffic maybe you get less crime maybe you get to live in this neighborhood that you moved into but at, at one point does a person get to assert? what people around them do and what kind of buildings that they build and who gets to live there.
0: Well, don't they?
1: I mean, I tend to take the view that you should be able to have the ability to do whatever you want with your land and not have stipulations on what other people, you know, in your neighborhood do specifically with your land. Like, well, it's perhaps, theirs.
0: perhaps in nature, but, if, if we're operating under a framework that people can band together for collective governance, why doesn't land use fall under the purview of what can be collectively governed?
1: I mean, it could be collectively governed, but again, it's the trade-off. Do you want cheaper rent or do you want the um, nice qualities of the neighborhood? It's kind of either one or the other.
0: Well, I, are are we talking about the specific applications of this policy or are we talking philosophically about what people can do with their land versus how they interact in a community? I think there's. I'm talking about I'm talking about the
1: market for land value. So if if a whole bunch of people want to move into your area, then um You know, if you if to to keep a market where your rents are at the level that you were going to be before, then you're going to need to build more apartments to accommodate those people. But if you are not wanting to build more apartments in that area, then you're going to have increased land value, increased land tax, and it's going to rent is going to cost more.
0: I, I can see that. I guess I just also simultaneously believe that we can still agree to have zoning restrictions if we believe it's in the best interest of everyone in the community. If that's something that we that, that a community collectively wants to agree to and manifest that through zoning laws, I, I don't see that as outside of the purview of what a community can do.
1: I mean, they certainly can do that, but then be, if they choose to do that and there's still higher demand, then there's going to be higher rent, which is another issue that people complain about.
0: Yeah, I think that um, as, as long as people understand what they're doing, and I think many people don't, I think many people say, well, you know, they're, they're like what you had referenced in the, the last episode or a couple episodes ago, uh, they're just NIMBYs, not in my backyard, keep everything yeah. the same. But
1: yeah, there should be more apartments, but not in my neighborhood.
0: I I guess I'm just taking the esoteric view and I'm like, you know, we can govern what people do with their land if it's for the collective good. Obviously, you're claiming and I think that there's a lot of validity to your claims that it doesn't end up being for the collective good. It ends up being for the good of, of a select few. I mean, but I just don't want to. I don't want to concede that you have no responsibility to others in your community just because you're a property owner. Yeah. That you have absolute autonomy.
1: I mean, if you believe that for the collective good, everybody needs to live in a one-family house. If you believe it's for the collective good that the neighborhood never changes, then those are the... The only things that I can see as, you know, what you're getting, I, I value my my honest value is that I believe everybody should have affordable housing and there should definitely be more affordable housing. And that in these areas with higher uh, higher demand, they would great, be greatly benefited uh, economically by building more housing for more people to come and live there affordably but i mean i guess if they don't want to do that i it's their choice but they need to know it's their choice
0: that's certainly fair i think that's really fair like there um, is so uh, here's
1: oh you go ahead
0: oh yeah just i was gonna say so I, I think we do both share the value of making sure that everyone has a home and making sure that people have what they need provided for them. So kind of explain to me how you think the the steps would go whereby you build more housing and then we can get closer to solving homelessness. If, as you say, there's still a floor and it seems like there's still going to be inherently people priced out of the market. It doesn't seem like something that the market alone can solve, even yeah. with a greater supply of housing.
1: So the uh, housing supply issue is not directly tied to homelessness. This is okay. It's not a direct dichotomy, and this this isn't the area where the real trade offs are made. Um, in most you know, in most communities, there is some level of homelessness, and that's not going to be solved through for having greater supply with lower rents. So in your places like LA, your New York, your uh, not Chicago, but you know there are places that have really, 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 really high demand, San Francisco, that the minimum floor that renters will rent out for is way higher because there's so many people wanting to live there. There are very few empty units. So, so they can
0: afford to take a they can afford to have higher prices and take higher profits because people will pay them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We'll
0: pay those rents.
1: Yeah. There aren't a whole lot of empty houses in San Francisco or L.A. or New York. There there's more people wanting to buy them. So if they raise prices because I mean, it's part of it. Costs go up because the land value goes up, but also because people are more willing to pay higher prices. Um, So then people. They'll charge higher rents. But if there are a lot more apartments, if there's empty units out there, then they have to compete with those empty units, um, which will end up limiting their ability to raise rents. Their property values won't go up as much and they can charge a lower rent. So that in high people- demand
0: areas, it's more likely that landlords will stick to the lower end closer to that floor of what they're able to
1: charge or there will be some people who charge you know the real low end like the uh like people who rent out a room in their house or the people who um have a small apartment above their business not necessarily the you know the big landlords the people who just have a small space that you know their the the rest of their you know everything else is not contingent on they can rent out those small spaces that lowest rent places tend to be but if if everybody's trying to get in there then those people can even make a whole lot more money because you know young professionals may be willing to work there who make way more than the uh, family who has two janitors in it Mm-hmm. Because it's so in demand. So yes, if you're you if you have a 25 year old who's working for a bank vying for the same apartment that a, a single mother with two part time jobs at at fast food restaurants is trying to vie for, the landlord is probably going to rent to the young professional um, because they have more money. More means. Mm -hmm. So, if those two people aren't having to compete for the same apartments, then people, then the people on the lower end of the spectrum can have apartments. Now, the now this isn't going to you know, give apartments from the market for everybody. I mean, this is talking to our uh, utopias from last week. We're still going to need policies like housing first that the government steps in tying it back. Rent control is kind of a bad way to go about it. It limits how much landlords make. It limits the availability. It limits the amount of capital in the market and it doesn't necessarily help in the same way.
0: Yeah. So I, I want to especially tout housing first because I think that, Uh, As I've learned today, you can make housing more affordable for a lot of people by removing zoning restrictions, but you can't avoid people being priced out of the market entirely. And that's what really concerns me, is making sure that even at the bottom end, we can get people into houses. So I'm still, after all this, I have not wavered in my support for housing first programs on humanitarian and economic grounds. Yeah. And but, go ahead. Yeah.
1: Um, like one example of this, the city of Minneapolis has been, has a mayor right now who is very, uh, Yimby. Yes. In my backyard and has been very pro development. And I just did a look last night and in downtown Minneapolis, a city that is, you know, it, you know, it is growing. It, ha- it has been, uh, been having a bit of an economic boon, R- rents for the same apartment that I have, a one-bedroom apartment, are lower than what I pay here in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is a because much smaller. Supply area. is greater. Yeah, because there's a great they've been able to keep up with supply by building more apartment buildings. Now, a lot of times the apartment buildings that they'll build be building are luxury apartment buildings, but increased supply just means that there'll be less rich people living in the kind of shitty apartments that other people will be renting. They'll go to those nice newer apartments and then everybody else gets the other apartment buildings.
0: Yeah. So that all makes sense. And I got to say coming into this, I really didn't know all that much about rent control. It seemed like a good idea. Oh yeah. Just, you know, make uh, cap cap, what landlords can charge and people will save money. But given that rent is calculated based on fixed cost, it really seems like a zero-sum game, doesn't it? Yeah. Like every dollar that someone pays less in rent, someone else in a property owned by that same landlord will have to pay a dollar more in rent. Yeah. And that it just seems counterintuitive to me. But I would encourage anyone, because I know a lot of people feel very strongly about rent control so if anyone has a really strong argument in favor of rent control that we aren't seeing or we're not considering please go ahead and email podcast at adequatelyinformed.com or reach out to me directly i'm i'm amenable to most (laughs) forms of communication
1: Um, um but yeah rent control in the now i can be i can be open to arguments that certain people in certain apartments can be granted special privileges that limits the amount their rent can increase or if it's you know done by a subsidy by the government or something like that that type of rent control but the rent control where the government comes in and stipulates this amount is going to be charged you know infinitely or very small changes over time is really and only a good idea if you if the people who are renting out these apartments are making, taking massive rents and, uh, and that's in the economic sense, massive rents and making a lot of profit. Or if the market is a, the housing market is a monopoly where they're charging higher prices and there's a lot of empty apartments and a lot of people who need them. But neither of those are quite scenarios that really occur out in the wild.
0: To to sum up my thoughts, from all the evidence that I can gather, it doesn't seem like rent control is an actual pathway to affordable housing for many people. While I do believe that it, it seems likely that zoning reform and allowing for the construction of greater numbers of housing units in in-demand areas would create more affordable housing, it doesn't diminish our need for programs that alleviate homelessness.
1: Yeah. Uh, The market isn't gonna provide down to zero um, in a way. I mean, unless you count charities, but I don't really count that. And it's not a total, and it's not a, I mean, if charities were able to solve all of the world's ills, we would have never had the government step in to begin with. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it definitely helps affordable housing. It helps people who are in working families who uh, sometimes end up becoming homeless in extremely high demand areas. Um, But otherwise, it helps helps with affordable housing and rent control. It helps the one individual who gets it, like a rent controlled apartment, or uh, gets uh, you know limits on their rent. But then everybody else who doesn't get those uh same protections then it doesn't help them and it's kind of a zero-sum game they get hurt for all those people who are helped and that doesn't have to happen it's like uh it's like putting a band-aid over uh over a broken leg (laughs) like
0: all right thank you thank you for not saying bullet hole yeah i would have i would have rage quit right
1: here (laughs) yeah putting a Band-Aid on a cut on a broken leg Like maybe it's helping that little bit But it's not helping the whole situation Mm -hmm. So That's uh, That's rent control It sure is So now this week We are ending with a New segment We're calling it
0: Trying out new stuff
1: Yeah we're trying out new stuff So do we call it quick takes? Do we call it hot takes? Regardless, we're trying to get some hot takes on some things that are happening lately in a fast manner. Just real quick. Not rehearsed. This is
0: off the cuff, off the dome.
1: Ding dong. So we'll go in the format where I go. I say it and then Evan will go and then I'll go. All right. Evan, Kanye West. Um, don't
0: care for his music. And I think that any changes in his outlook can be described as temporary at best.
1: I like some of his music, but I always thought the worst part of Kanye's music was Kanye. And yeah, I, I don't know if, you know, the $68 million tax cut he got is not a gift from God.
0: Not a gift from God. Uh,
1: uh, Evan, fantasy football.
0: Um, we're in a really fun league where you get points for everything you get like hundreds of points for a touchdown you get quarterbacks get points for incomplete passes everyone scores four thousand points a week it's ridiculous and it's great
1: it's fun i forgot to set my lineup two weeks in a row now i'm falling behind
0: yeah two and six i'm four and four
1: yeah um uh adam schiff
0: adam schiff um I, I don't have any personal affinity for him. I wish that people would stop the anti Semitic attacks.
1: I don't know. He just seems like a guy. I don't know. I I mean I only hear about him when he gets attacked by people. What is he doing? I don't know. That that's um, the correct
0: take. Joe nailed it, everyone. He this is we got it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that we win. Um uh Evan, uh the Irishman.
0: Uh, I hope to see it uh, soon. I probably won't get to see it in theaters, but it will be coming to Netflix. I don't care that it's three and a half hours long. I have I I have the patience for that. And Scorsese is almost always on point. So I'm very excited.
1: I am. You know, I work a job that's 12 hours long and somehow I make it fast. So three and a half hours, that's going to be nothing. Um, Evan, Lori Laughlin might be going to jail. What do you think? Fucker. Yeah, don't. You, you already got cloud. Don't need to pay to get into college. Yeah. Um, it's, Evan.
0: Yeah. Sorry. Quick. Take. Evan, what's quick, it? quick.
1: Yeah. 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 What's your hot take on hot takes?
0: Um, I be on the lookout for the hot takes, hot cake show where Joe and I discuss these hot takes while eating hot cakes from McDonald's. That's my dream.
1: Yeah. Um, my hot take on hot takes is that they're hot and I love them, but they have a very specific place and they don't substitute for actual substance, which we're trying to do. So Evan, thanks yeah. for joining us uh, I was going to say thanks for joining me but this is a collaborative effort I don't have you on um,
0: <laughs> oh but that would, that would radically reshape what I think I've been doing for the last month
1: <laughs> next month we get a new host um, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway so that, that's been uh, from Evan and I we're wrapping up here uh We would like to thank multi-unit housing um, for housing more people in one place. I'd like to thank my apartment building that has eight apartments in it. Go us.
0: Yeah, they should put that on the brochures.
1: (laughs) Would also like to thank Anthony Hish for the music in this episode. And you got anyone you'd like to thank, Evan? It could be even a joke.
0: Oh, well, um, I got to thank... Neil Brennan, uh, his three mics special. I finally got to watch and it was great. Very real good. Inspiring. It was
1: real good. Um, yeah, somehow he got to do all three types of stand-up all at once. And yeah. um, that was that was uh, innovative and I really liked it.
0: Yeah, well there you go. This hasn't come up between us before, but now, now you know that was one of my favorite things I've watched recently.
1: Well, geez, we should have talked about that.
0: Well, <laughs> it's not topical though.
1: Yeah, it's not topical. So, in the future, maybe watch out for us talking about BoJack, but we'll see. Anyway, we hope you've been adequately
0: informed.
1: Be adequately informed.